following the news at all this week, uh, you know about what happened in Minneapolis and about the tragic death of George Floyd. And uh, you might remember that three weeks ago, I uh, had a plan for a message and I just shelved it at the last minute uh, to talk about some current events. And one of those current events, of course, was the racially charged incident uh, of the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery. And so in light of current events, uh, I feel like what was said in that message and the first half of that message is uh, even more imperative uh, than it was then. And so if you missed that message, I do encourage you at some point this week to go back and listen to it. Uh, you can find it in the videos section on our page. Uh, call, it's called Addressing What's on Our Minds. Uh, or of course, you can always uh, find the messages in our podcast feed. Um, if you're not aware that we have a podcast, uh, we do. Uh, you can go and uh, look up the podcast in your podcast feed. Just look up St. Paul's Church, Willington, and uh, all of the last four years of messages are, are there. Um, I would also encourage you to go and revisit a message on the subject of race and the church and America. Um, from about a year and a couple months ago, I believe it was uh, February 10th, 2019, uh, that message was called Learning to Love. And everything I said there, I want to say again this morning. And um, I'm not, I'm not going to do that this week. Um, but I encourage you, if you have a chance this week, if you missed that message or you've just forgotten about it, uh, I really encourage you to go go back and listen to it because it really says what's on my heart and and what I would like to say in light of uh, these recent events. But right now, uh, the only thing I want to say about all of that is uh, something simple, and it is this. There really are a huge number of black men and women in America right now who feel an enormous amount of pain and sadness because of events like these, uh, because of personal experiences they have had, uh, which have demonstrated to them uh, that there are a large number of people in America who don't seem to think that their lives are as valuable as white lives. And in light of that, I think it is just so important for those of us who are followers of Jesus, black, white, Asian, and Hispanic alike, to be able to say, Black Lives Matter. And I realize as I say that, uh, that for some of you, you might be going, oh, are you saying that I have to agree with every method or every uh, uh, belief of the official Black Lives Matter movement? And that's not what I'm talking about. I am just saying we should be able to affirm uh, without qualification, enthusiastically, that Black Lives Matter. We should be able to say that, and we should be able to live in a way that reflects that reality, that God-given reality of the value and dignity um, of Black lives. And I wanna, I wanna say something. I know that some people hear that phrase, Black Lives Matter, and their first response is to say, well, all lives matter. And that is 100% true, yes all lives matter. But given the circumstances, it can be a little rude to change the subject. Um, 
And I'd like to give an analogy of, of why that's so. When you have a specific concern, you want some affirmation that that specific concern is being addressed. For example, let's say you suddenly came down with a rare illness uh, that is potentially fatal. And you go to your doctor and you ask your doctor, is there anyone who's working on a cure for this illness? And then the doctor says, well, doctors are working on cures for all illnesses. That's not really going to be very reassuring for you, right? What you really want to hear is the doctor saying, yeah, there are people working on this right now. I can give you the names of some doctors. I can tell you about some treatment plans and some of their theories that they have. You, you're going to want to hear a specific response to the specific concern uh, that you have. When an entire segment of the population is looking for reassurance that the majority culture really does believe that their lives matter. Um, and the response that they hear is not a specific affirmation of their lives, but this purposeful generalization, that can sound suspicious, right? And we in the church should be able to say, because we know it is the truth, uh, that Black lives matter. And that is the specific concern uh, that needs to be addressed right now we should be able to give a unqualified affirmation of dignity and value. And that's all I'm gonna say about that for now. Um, I encourage us to be in prayer uh, for healing for our nation, uh, for, for justice, um, for repentance where there needs to be repentance, uh, for peace and for our nation to reflect this God-given reality uh, that black lives matter. And again, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to those messages. So uh, we're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And I think the passage that we're going to look at has a lot of relevance in light of recent events. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. Matthew 5, 38. All of us experience, to some extent, personal injustices, right? Uh, people wrong us, people hurt us, people mistreat us. How are we supposed to deal with that? As followers of Jesus, how are we supposed to handle uh, that sort of mistreatment? Well, in the passage we're about to look at, Jesus is going to address that very subject. And what he has to say is really challenging teaching extremely challenging. In fact, if we read this and we just go, hmm, mm -hmm, okay, let's keep going, then I don't think we've really heard what Jesus is saying. Uh, we have to wrestle with this text. And after wrestling with it uh, this week, I'm convinced that there's more here than meets the eye. There's more to what Jesus says uh, than we often realize. So uh, Matthew 5, 38. But before I read this, let me say, a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to come together as your church and to, uh, to worship you, uh, to read your word together, uh, to reflect on how your word relates to uh, the unique circumstances of our lives. God, we pray that you would open us up to hear from you this morning. 
whatever it is that you want to tell us. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and your grace. And uh, we just pray for a fresh outpouring of your love and your uh, direction this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All right, so what is Jesus saying here? Because it sounds kind of like what he's saying is, don't ever try to fight evil, be a doormat. Just let evil people walk all over you. And as you can imagine, I don't think that's a very accurate paraphrase of Jesus's teaching. Let's take it from the top. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Now, what is Jesus talking about there? Well, there was a general principle in Jewish law that the punishment should be proportional to the crime. Uh, this is what we call the law of retribution. So it's eye for an eye, not life for an eye. And uh, in the ancient world, this was actually a very merciful uh, legal, uh, a legal law. Uh, in some places, you know, if you stole a loaf, loaf of bread, what happens? You get your hand cut off. Uh, hand for a loaf of bread, right? But no, in, in, in Jewish law, it was loaf of bread for a loaf of bread, or at least a comparable financial restitution. And this principle, the law of retribution, was meant to prevent a ever-escalating cycle of revenge. So Jesus says, you know about the law of retribution, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, I have to confess, uh, that word resist there, I don't think that's a great translation. Because when we hear don't resist, we hear don't do anything. And it's clear that that is not Jesus's point. Jesus is not saying don't do anything. What he's saying is in contrast to the law of retribution. So when Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, what he means is don't retaliate against an evil person. Don't insist on eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Don't, don't insist on this principle of re retribution and revenge. And then what Jesus does, the way I like to think about the, the rest of this passage is that he gives several examples of what it looks like to resist evil, but without retaliation. What it looks like to resist evil, but without retaliation. So let's talk about three of these examples. Okay, the first one is probably the most famous one. Uh, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, what is the point of this example? Well, to be struck on the cheek was a exceptionally humiliating experience. Of course, being struck on the cheek is physically painful, but the physical pain is not Jesus's main point here. Uh, 
his point is the humiliation. In the ancient world, being struck on the cheek was degrading. It was an affront to one's dignity. You know, masters struck slaves on the cheek. Uh, superiors struck inferiors on the cheek. And something interesting is that the most degrading way to strike someone was with the back of your hand. And don't ask me to explain exactly why this was, but in those days, it was customary to use your right hand for things in public, including if you were going to strike someone. So when Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, that's significant because what Jesus is basically saying there is if someone strikes you in the most humiliating way possible, this is how you should respond. Because look, here's my right hand, right? So if I was going to hit you with the back of my right hand, what side of, my of your face am I going to hit? I'm going to hit the right side, right? So again, the reason that right cheek is specified is because Jesus is saying if someone hits you in the culturally most humiliating way possible, what, what should you do? You should turn the other cheek. This is how you should respond. Now, what is this response that Jesus advises? What is the significance of it? It's not to hit back, right? And it's not to run away. And those two responses, fight or flight, those are hardwired into our biology when there's a threat. Those are the most natural responses. Fight back or run away. And Jesus doesn't tell us to do either of those things. Jesus advises this third way, turn the other cheek. Now, I have to say, sometimes this passage has been misinterpreted in some, vain, some very dangerous ways. Um, there have been women in uh, terrible situations of domestic abuse who have sought help and pastors, maybe with good intentions, have pointed to this passage that says, you know, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. And they've said, well, I guess you're going to have to turn the other cheek. Don't run away, turn the other cheek. But that's a terrible misuse of this passage because Jesus isn't telling us here how to re respond to a situation where our life is in danger, right? That's the, not the main point of being struck on the cheek. He's telling us how to respond to people's attempts to humiliate us, to demean us, to insult us. That's the main idea here. So, you know, when someone flips you off, uh, when someone says something bad about your mom, when someone uh, insults you, the right response is not to insult back. Uh, it's not to flip them off back, right? The right response is to turn the other cheek. Now, what does that mean to turn the other cheek? Well, think about it. If I strike you, in that most humiliating way possible, and you go down on the ground, and then you get back up and you turn the other cheek, what are you saying to me? You're saying, your attempt to just humiliate me, it didn't work. You haven't stolen my honor. You haven't stolen my self-respect. You haven't reduced me to some self-hating pile of shame. It didn't work. I, 
it, it's, it's a way of saying your attempt to rob me of my humanity and my dignity, it's failed. I know who I am. I know who I am in Christ. I, I know who God says that I am. God defines who I am, not you. So, you know, if you want to hit me again. That's what it means to turn the other cheek. Now, some commentators say, and I don't know for sure if this is true, but this is really interesting. Some commentators say that turning the other cheek was actually a really clever way of asserting dignity after being struck. Because once you turn the other cheek, you can't be struck again in the most humiliating way possible. Because remember, you, the most humiliating way possible, back of the hand being struck with the right hand. So if I strike you on the right side of the face and then you turn the other cheek, can I do it again? I can't, right? So now you are, you are responding in a way that's saying, you can't, you can't humiliate me again, at least not without breaking cultural norms. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, here's what I think we need to hear him saying. When people try to humiliate you, when they insult you, when they disrespect you, don't respond with violence. Don't retaliate. Don't respond by getting even, but here's what you do. Demonstrate to them that your sense of dignity and value is not dependent on them. You don't need their approval. You don't need it, so invite them to slap you again. Now, the opposite of this attitude is when we are always desperate to defend ourselves all the time. You know, I'm reminded of how back in the old days, uh, if someone felt like their honor was offended, they would challenge the offender to a duel, right? And, and the point of the duel was for someone to recover their honor, either by killing the offender, or at least showing that they were willing to put their lives on the line to defend their honor. And fortunately, dueling is not culturally acceptable anymore. Uh, but the fact that it once was, that reveals something about the human heart, which is it reveals how unwilling some of us are to turn the other cheek, right? We so crave honor that we're willing to die for it. But Jesus says, don't do that. Don't duel. If someone personally insults you, let it roll off. Turn the other cheek. When we turn the other cheek, we lovingly disempower our enemies because we, we demonstrate to them that they can't control our sense of self-worth. And the other great thing about turning the other cheek is that when we do that, we stick around long enough to open up an opportunity for reconciliation in the relationship. For example, if you're having a difficult conversation with someone and they resort to attacking you, throwing insults at you, uh, trying to humiliate you, that sort of thing, turning the other cheek doesn't mean you just leave the conversation, although at some point that might be the best thing to do. But turning the other cheek means your first response is not fight and it's not flight. It's to respond in a way that demonstrates that those insults have not phased you, right? and to continue to focus the discussion on the important issues at hand in a gracious way, right? And when we don't fight and when we don't flee, we open up that opportunity for reconciliation. Okay, 
let's look at the next amp example Jesus gives for how to resist evil without retaliation. Verse 40. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, just like turn the other cheek, at first glance, this advice might just sound like, let people walk all over you. If an evil person wants something from you, um, give them even more. Uh, you know, if they steal your wallet, offer your PIN number for your debit card while, while they're at it. Um, but I don't think that that's quite what Jesus means. Again, I think there's more here uh, than meets the eye. And here's why I say that. In those days, if someone took both your cloak and your tunic, guess what? You would be naked. And just like today, uh, public nakedness was taboo. Uh, if you were naked in public, that brought shame upon you. And if other people saw you naked in public, that brought some shame upon them as well. So if someone tried to sue you for your tunic, and in those days, poor people often had just a cloak and a tunic. They didn't have a drawer with a whole bunch of other outfits, right? If somebody sued you for your tunic and then you gave them your cloak as well, that would be awkward. <laughs> that would be embarrassing for them. And so what some commentators think, and I, I think this is a, a really important idea for us to consider, is that Jesus isn't just saying, you know, let people walk all over you and, and give them even more than they're, they, they're demanding from you. But he's saying something like, let your oppressors realize uh, what they're doing. Make them feel a little uncomfortable about their selfishness and their greed by exposing uh, their selfishness and greed to them. Uh, so what might this look like in uh, practical day-to-day -day life? Well, uh, here's one example that I thought of. You know, let's say that there's a very wealthy person who lives 50 miles away, and uh, they build a factory in a poor town, and uh, they work around environmental regulations and all that stuff, and they break all the rules, and their factory is just producing all this smog, and it's ruining the conditions in the town, and the kids all have asthma and that sort of thing. What might it look like to practice this principle in that situation? What it might look like is something like inviting that wealthy man to dinner at your house. Uh, because when you do that, you're being generous, just like giving your cloak when somebody already took your tunic, but you're being generous in a way that exposes to that wealthy person the consequences of their actions. You see what I mean? Because when that wealthy person shows up at the house and sees the conditions that you're living in and, and has to breathe in that air, there's probably going to be some embarrassment there, hopefully, right? And then an opportunity is created for reconciliation. Now, maybe those commentators are reading a little bit too much into that verse. Maybe Jesus is just talking about radical generosity. That is possible, okay? But whatever the case, um, I think that's an interesting idea to consider. And I also think that it's just important for us to recognize the main idea here is Jesus is saying, don't respond to evil with retaliation. Respond with generosity and with creativity.
All right, let's look at one more example of resistance without retaliation. Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, what is this about? Well, in those days, Rome occupied Israel. Uh, I've talked about this a lot in previous messages. Uh, and the fact that Rome occupied Israel was this constant thorn in Israel's side. Israel wanted to be sovereign and free as a nation, but they weren't. And because Rome had control over Israel, there were often Roman soldiers in Israel. And there was this law uh, that said that a Roman soldier had the right to force an Israelite to carry his or her, his or her pack uh, for a mile. For one mile. And uh, being forced to do that was insulting. It was uh, obviously hard work in the hot sun. You didn't want to get asked by a Roman soldier to carry his, his stuff. Now, some Israelites advocated for violent rebellion against this injustice, uh, against this Roman occupation. Uh, but Jesus said no. Jesus said, you know, if Roman soldiers ask you to carry their stuff, carry it. And don't just carry it for the one mile that the law demands that you carry it for. Offer to carry it for a second mile. Now, obviously, Jesus is saying here, show kindness to your enemy, right? That's definitely part of what he's saying. But I think that Jesus is encouraging something more here because when, when uh, he says, go a second mile, he is encouraging the oppressed person to gain a sense of humanity and control. Because going a second mile is not something that the Roman, uh, the Roman soldier can enforce, right? It's a free choice on the part of the Israelites. According to the law, the Roman can only make him go one mile. Uh, so when the Israelite chooses to go two miles, he's doing that freely. And when he does that, he gains a sense of control and power over his oppressor. You know, I can only imagine what that might be like for a Roman soldier. You know, imagine that some cocky soldier comes up to some poor Israelite and he says, hey, carry my stuff. Yeah, it's pretty heavy, isn't it? And maybe he's mocking him the whole way, you know, pretty hot out today, right? And then imagine that they come to the mile marker and then he goes to take the pack from him. And then the Israelite looks at him and says, eh, you know what, I'm not really doing anything. And, you know, I thought we could just keep hanging out. And I can go another mile with you. You see how that throws off the oppressor. You can imagine that maybe after a while that Roman soldier is going to think, boy, that was, I wasn't too nice to him. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. <clears throat> so going that extra mile, it's not just an act of kindness, although it is that, uh, but it's an, also an act that gives the oppressed person humanity and control. Now, again, here's what I want us to recognize about all three of these examples of resistance without ret retaliation. In all three of these examples, Jesus is telling us to resist evil in creative ways, creative resistance. Now, uncreative resistance to evil is all about fight or flight, right? And it's usually motivated by fear and hate. But creative resistance against evil is motivated by love. 
and creative resistance creates the opportunity for reconciliation between enemies in a way that uncreative resistance never does. So often we are very uncreative in how we respond to evil. We insult, we get violent, that sort of thing. And Jesus encourages us, get creative, get creative. Uh, let me finish with an example of creative resistance to evil uh, from history. During World War II, when Nazis occupied Denmark, they made an order that all Jews had to wear these yellow armbands to identify themselves as Jews. So imagine you're in that situation. How do you resist that evil as a non-Jewish person? Do you start stabbing Nazi soldiers in the streets? Do you flee to another country? What do you do? Well, the king of Denmark, who was not a Jew, he put a yellow armband on himself. And he attended a celebration at a Jewish synagogue, the main Jewish synagogue in Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark. And most of the population of Copenhagen followed suit, whether they were Jewish or not, they put on those yellow armbands. And because of that, the Nazis had to rescind the order because when, with everyone wearing the armbands, uh, it didn't work anymore. It, it wasn't effective. So that's what creative resistance looks like, right? It's clever. It's not retaliation. It's not violent. It's not fight or flight. Uh, it's creative. And in that situation, it worked. So when someone insults you, when they treat you unfairly, when they demean you, don't retaliate. Get creative and open the possibility for reconciliation. Amen.